I invite you to take a Bible now, either your own Bible or the church Bible. Turn with me for our ongoing study in the Apostle Peter's letter, his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2. We pretty much in this church, from this pulpit, consider the word of God to be of such great importance, every word of it, that we preach verse by verse. And in this series, we have now come to verse 11 and verse 12, verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Father, may the words of my mouth and then the thoughts of our minds and hearts together around this sacred text be acceptable first to you. And may it bear fruit in our lives for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some weeks ago, one of my childhood heroes passed away at the age of 85. I refer to Davy Crockett, born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, greenest state in the land of the free, raised in the woods so he knew every tree and killed him a bar, that is a bear, when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Of course, I'm not referring to the real Davy Crockett, born in 1786 and died, as you know, heroically in the Battle of the Alamo in 1836. But to me, at least back in the late 1950s, the actor Fess Parker was Davy Crockett on television. Some years later, in the 1960s, he would play another American icon, Daniel Boone. When Fess Parker passed away at his home in California this last March, somehow for me it was like the turning of another page in this aging pastor's life. But then just the other day, my memories were excited again when I was reading an article in the journal National Review. It was about the Alamo. And as a footnote in the editorial was the story of how John F. Kennedy, in his 1960 presidential campaign, stopped by the Alamo and made a rousing patriotic speech there. After the speech... With the front courtyard crowded with reporters, JFK, on a tight schedule, turned to his host, who happened to be one of the daughters of the Republic of Texas, and asked if he could simply slip out, if he could leave through the back door. Senator, she replied, there are no back doors at the Alamo. Only 
heroes? A great answer. The next two verses in our ongoing study here, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, is a good text for soldiers of Jesus Christ. Every believer who understands that Christians, true believers who have committed their lives to Christ as Lord, actually occupy every day enemy territory. Every day. Until Jesus comes again. We battle, do we not, with the world that is its influence, its godless systems of desire. We battle also with our own fleshly desires and, of course, the devil himself. This world and its evil prince is no friend to God's grace and is, by the way, an avowed enemy of the redeemed children of God. If you have been genuinely born from above, you need to know there is no back door. There is no retreat. There is no surrender. Just weak and sometimes trembling saints given the grace of God to fight all the way to the end. And that end, of course, being Christ securing the final victory. At his second coming. Back in the early verses of chapter one, we were there a long time ago, it seems now. Peter, remember, speaks of our true home, our inheritance, which he described as being imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven, it says in verse four. That's our real home. By the way, it's what I mean to imply in my sermon title this morning. Home, real home, is a place I've never been. Sometimes, isn't it true, in the midst of life's battles, we even get a little homesick for the place we've never been. But in the meantime, even as the battle rages on, Peter told us that we... Here in chapter one at verse five are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that is in the ultimate sense, a salvation, he says, which will be revealed to us in the last time. The last day of battle for all of God's saints is when we go marching in. And so, in the meantime, the scriptures are always calling us to persevere, to hang on, to keep on keeping on, because, again, there's no back door. Knowing that the trumpet, which will never sound retreat, will, in fact, yield one long blast of victory when the dead in Christ shall rise Those soldiers who remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. I think one of the most pitiful among all creatures on earth would be a child of God who mistakenly hangs on and clings to this world as though it was their final destiny. I confess to you, brothers and sisters, that my my personal greatest spiritual challenge 
is to keep the reality of the future glory in my focus. And not to allow that vision to be clouded by the dark clouds of life in a fallen world, which even now we know is passing away, just as even some of our loved ones have passed away into the glory. To help me in my struggle, and I think to help you keep that eternal perspective, note that Peter employs two words to remind us of what we already know. That this world is not our home. The two terms reflecting a kind of severe identity, I think, for the children of God is the word alien, as we read it, and the term stranger in this text. Uh, Like the old King James Version, it uses the word pilgrims, bringing to mind the classic work of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We're not home yet. We're on a journey. And ultimately, all of us, should the Lord tarry, will go through something called even the valley of the shadow of death itself. Now, chapter 2 here, verse 11. Beloved, there's these two words, I urge you as aliens and strangers, the King James pilgrims. I want to stop right there. That first word, beloved. On the one hand, by referring to us as the beloved, we are reminded that in a hostile world, we always and ever are the beloved of the Lord. Remember how one day God the Father boomed with pride from heaven and said, This is my, what? Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Now, we know that the Father held the deepest affections for His only begotten, the Son. The Scriptures say, always did those things that pleased the Father. And I could ask the question and be sure of your answers. Could ever a father love a son more than God the Father loved his own son? Of course not. And yet, could God demonstrate his depth of love to us in any greater way than to give His only begotten, the Beloved Son, so that believing in Him, we might not perish. We might not perish. We, who only ever did those things which displeased Him and were worthy of only hell. We, by an almost scandalous grace, have not only been accepted in that beloved Son, but we too now are called many, many times in the sacred writings, the beloved of the Lord. Peter says we are the beloved, not only citizens of the kingdom of God, but quite literally now, the children of God with Christ, our elder brother. Amazing grace. Just as Christ came into this fallen world and his 
own people received him not as he came into a desperately lost world and the world knew him not for his righteousness was something quite alien from the world's viewpoint. There was no other righteous ones. No, not one. Only Christ. Christ's true life, which was God himself living in flesh, was himself a stranger even among his own family members. And we, Jew and Gentile alike, esteemed him not. Not until by sovereign mercy he opened our blind eyes. But now in our being united to him by grace through faith, is it not a badge of royal honor that we would be considered what Peter calls us here, aliens and strangers in a world that was literally once the domain of our own fallen desires. So Peter says more than that. You notice the language of the text. He urges that we ought to abstain from these fleshy lusts. He urges. Uh, The Greek term here is quite strong and quite wonderful, actually. It's the word parakaleo, two-part word. The King James Version often uses the Old English, I beseech you. It conjures the picture of Peter coming right alongside the alien and scattered new believers in Christ, putting his arm around their shoulder, as it were, through his letter, and saying to his fellow brothers and sisters, let's keep going. Let's keep marching. This world is not our destiny. We're marching to Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. We may be aliens and strangers, pilgrims in this hostile place. But never forget, we, we are the beloved, the beloved of the Lord. Parakaleto, I urge you. Jesus used this very word. To describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit after he would leave them and return to the Father. He said, the Father, I will send you another parakaleo, another comforter, a beseecher, a strengthener. The Holy Spirit, he will guide you. He will urge you, even as Peter is urging us in the letter. He will urge you into the direction of all truth. Now, this is help. This is real help. This is help from on high. The comforter, the paracoleto has come. Or as we sang in that opening hymn today, Peter in a similar way by our text is doing what we sang, spreading the tidings, the gospel good news. Wherever man is found, wherever human hearts and human woes abound, let every Christian tongue proclaim the joyful sound. What is it? The comforter has come. Peter says that this help comes in remembering that since we are now aliens and strangers in this world, just as Jesus was, we ought to look, look at verse 11. He says, we ought to abstain from fleshly lusts. 
the strong desires that come from our fallenness. What's the text saying? It's it's really quite straightforward, though hard for us in our present time and culture. But it's this. Bible believing, or should I say Bible obeying Christians are to be abstainers. They are to practice abstinence. That is, they are to determine what things in this world and in their own fallenness are those things which God calls sin and they are, I should get more personal here, we are to abstain. That's a tall order, folks. And I'll tell you why. This involves saying something we find so hard to say to ourselves. And it's only a two-letter word. This involves saying no to ourselves. And what makes this a real spiritual warfare is that God is asking us to deny ourselves some of the very things in our fallenness that we actually desire. It's not what comes to us in the new birth that makes being a Christian so hard. All of that is abundant life. What makes being an obedient Christian so hard is the struggle to say no to all the things that still work in us or influence us in this world or to do battle with the devil himself. On the one hand, we hear the command, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And on the other hand, we must with early and frequent repentance confess that we do too much love the world and the things in the world and the cravings of our fallen desire we yield to with little effort. The lust after things we see and the perennial exertions of our selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed lives. What John calls the boastful pride of life. But I want you to understand Peter, nor does any apostle in any of the letters, is never just moralizing here. His greater concern is that we... Aliens and strangers, by the grace of God, children of another kingdom, that we would not suffer injury to the deepest part of our existence. What Peter refers to as our souls, the seat of life in Christ. He would have us, he says, abstain from worldly Sinful, selfish lust, because when we indulge those things, we hurt ourselves at the deepest level of our existence, the soul. 
that place, that one place, by the way, where we get to commune with the Father, the Son, and the precious Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, we read the admonition that says, does it not? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Another place, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Why? We simply cannot afford to have our souls injured in the battle for Christ's preeminence. His, not our first place in every aspect of our lives. That's what Peter's saying. Does he not say that these fleshly lusts, look at the text, wage war with our souls? The apostle Christ himself is concerned for the welfare of our souls. And so he commands us, not with a mere list of do's and don'ts, as I somewhat had as an experience in growing up in the Christian church. I thought being a good Christian just meant you didn't get to do a lot of really fun things that everyone else was doing. I didn't realize that some of those things that I called fun... I called fun because they were the workings of the desires of my own fallenness. I didn't know that when he said, do not do this or that, he was expressing concern for my very soul. We sow, don't we, to the flesh. And the Bible says, can't get around it. You'll reap destruction. It also says that we sow or we respond to the Spirit of God. We reap more life as it is meant to be experienced by a believer. Joyful, abundant life, even in a fallen world. But we do so with our uniforms on, our armor. It is a battle. You know, I read recently a Christian counseling case study of a young woman whose long-standing habits of life had left her deeply stained with countless immoralities and poor choices and now even addictions of every kind. She was driven in that. She had actually come to Christ. But many of her habits persisted and she was miserable because of it. That's why she was with the pastoral counselor. The biblical counselor was explaining to her on one particular session how God gives grace to the weak and how the Holy Spirit is there to give his comfort based power to say no when the desires of her flesh were pressing in on her soul. And as I read the case study, apparently there was a few moments of absolute silence between the girl and the counselor. When with tears in her eyes, she lifted her head and looked into his eyes. And she said, Do you mean I don't have to do the things I want to do? Do you mean that God has given me a new nature, His grace, the Holy Spirit, His power, so that I don't have to do 
the things, if I'm honest, I want to do? Exactly. That is what Peter is saying in this world of sin. We don't have to do what we, in our sinful flesh, want to do. We are the Lord's beloved. We are empowered to abstain, to say no to the world and no to the devil, and even to say no, my goodness, to ourselves. When what we want, that is, is something truly sinful. By the way, I want to deliver a caution here. Make sure that that which you think is sinful is actually sin. Sometimes a mistake is made and we abstain from something God calls one of his good gifts. Someone else has called it sin. If your background, for example, is one of primarily not so much gospel good news, but moralism, where you have a background, even a legalistic form of works righteousness, Truth is, you may be forfeiting some of the gifts of God available to us, even in a fallen world. The Scriptures tells us, does it not, that God has given to us every good gift and all things to enjoy. All things, of course, that are not sinful things. We would all do well, I think, to edit our sin list. To be sure that we are doing battle only with those things that the Bible calls sin. May I say that clearly to you? And actually, surprisingly to some of you, this could come as great relief. The only sins you need to be concerned about. So as not to injure your souls, as Peter says. Are those sins that are actually named in the Bible. Perhaps a second list of other things which may not be sin, but are somehow not useful to growth in godliness. Some of you may find that you can delete certain things that you were told by someone else other than what God has said in his word is a, is a sin. It is more likely in our day that some of us will have to add some sins to the sin list if we really search the scriptures to see what God calls sin, that Peter says we are to abstain from. I wonder, by the way, what is your inward experience when God speaks to you? And I'm, of course, referring when he speaks to you the only way he speaks today, which is out of his word or through the preaching and teaching of his word. Perhaps uh, you will welcome a moment or two of free biblical counsel. When you read the Bible and God is defining for you the problem of sin, or when you come across passages of Scripture and you, you read them as bold, thou shalt not, let me ask, with what tone of voice in your sanctified imagination do you hear God speaking to you? What's God's tone of voice in your soul? Is it a judgmental tone of voice? Add the wagging finger. 
Do that. I'll make you pay. Voice of God. Is it a tone of voice that somehow in the very tone is always somehow guilt-inducing? A tone of voice that always sounds forbidding. Are you sometimes afraid that God might catch you having a good time? Or just being a little too happy? Even over innocent things? Is God's tone of voice in your life a scolding one? Is He angry? Does He just expect too much? Make you feel stupid and hopelessly weak? Listen, beloved. Remember the word, beloved? If you are His child then those things are never his tone of voice. In fact, he speaks and says, Understand, my child, there is no condemnation to those in my Son, Christ Jesus. And so, he could never speak to us in tones of rejection. By the way, he already knows far better than you. Just how weak you are, inferior you feel, how discouraged you are by your own failings. I'm talking mainly to people who give a hoot about their relationship to God. Others, I suppose, one could even be here this morning that could care less. But listen to me. On the authority of God's word, I tell you that all of his commands are not burdensome. They are not restrictive, but rather they are life-preserving and life-giving. It's the devil, not God, who first suggested to our parents living in paradise that the forbidden fruit would really be good for them, though it had in it the terrible sting of death. The truth is that God has given us His own Son. How will He not also freely give us all things? He's already lavished His grace upon you. And if He tells you when it comes to certain things, abstain. Do not touch, my child. You'll burn your fingers. Do not handle. Do not taste. Run, He says, From immorality, it is only those things which wage war with the soul. And that's a place he would have you reserve just for him and just for you. I hesitate to put it this way, but think of your redeemed soul as a spiritual love nest. He stands at the door and knocks with the promise that if you open the door, he will come in for a candlelight dinner. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. His tone of voice is not different from Peter's here. It is the voice of a lover saying, for your own sake and his, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Remember, oh, that I could remember it more, believe it more, that every sinful desire makes promises it never keeps. And sin, by the way, will always take us further than we want to go. 
His tone of voice is always a father's pleading and only because he wants what is best for you. My purpose this morning was to take in as well verse 11. But, you know, verse 11 deserves its own sermon. And I think I'll come to that next Lord's Day should the Lord tarry. But let me close this way, at least verse 10. Davy Crockett was among the 189 defenders that sacrificed their lives at the battle of the Alamo. But the truth is, their self-denial changed history. The phrase, do you know it? Remember the Alamo! Folks, that became the battle cry of those who came behind them and led to a great ultimate victory for the Lone Star State and, in fact, the United States of America. But how much more eternal the weight of glory in the sacrifice each day of ordinary saints who, by the grace of God, are finally learning to say, I hope maybe five, six, seven times a day, if you don't hear yourself saying no to yourself, well, you're not much of a soldier. Time to go back, I guess, to basic training. But this much is true. There's no back door. We need to learn to be disciplined, good soldiers of Jesus Christ who go into battle denying even the preservation of our own lives so that our souls may be preserved as that place where we have sweet communion and our love relationship to Jesus Christ.